when three is just not enough. When three only scratches the surface. When four is more than a number between three and five. When four is required for coverage. When four is more than a golf term. When four is forming in your brain. When four brings a stunning conclusion. When four is required reading. Paul on gifts. Part four. It's in your Sunday school class today. <laughs> okay. I figure you're willing to come back. Let's make it a stunning conclusion or give it a shot anyway. Uh, here is our basic review. We've talked about all a number of different words Paul used for the word gifts. When he talks about the gifts that God has, he uses different words, doron, dorion, uh, 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 any number of different words. We then zoomed in on his word charisma, charismata, a word that Paul, for all practical purposes, invented. And uh, uh, it's, it's a tremendous word that's given birth to uh, its own English word within church history, the charismatic movement, the charismatic renewal. We've got a first wave, second wave, third wave, depending upon who you're reading and how you're reading it, and any number of different things. But what I have urged us to do is we address Paul's theology on charismata and the charismatic gifts and charisma is I've urged us to realize what the word means in its basic form for Paul. Not what we interpret it to mean as we speak of the charismatic movement. But what did Paul mean for the word? And for Paul, the word charisma and charismata meant a concrete expression of God's charis, of God's giving, of God's grace. Paul took the Greek word charis, which means grace or gift, and took it into a form of a noun that's saying basically just what we see, what we experience as far as God's giving in a concrete, objective way. That's the core of the word. So for Paul, this becomes very important Because he speaks of charismatic gifts. But we got to be careful because for Paul, look at some of the charismatic gifts he speaks of. In Romans 5, 15 and 16, he says, The free gift, the charisma, is not like the trespass. The free gift, following many trespasses, brought justification. He's saying, we have justification through Jesus Christ. And the death of Christ on the cross is a charismatic gift. It's a concrete expression of God's giving. You can't get more expressive of the giving of God than you can by seeing Jesus on the cross. Agreed? The most objective act of God's giving that we could find. Paul uses the word again in Romans 6.23. The passage that, that Pastor Fleming quoted in his sermon this morning. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. That's the charismatic gift of God. This also lets us know that the charismatic gifts are not gone. Because this charismatic gift, the free gift of God, eternal life in Christ Jesus, is here today. Amen. 
So what we need to do is not focus just on charismatic matters. What we need to do is try to really dig down and understand the scriptures that have given birth to the charismatic movement, but the same scriptures that give birth to, to the church. Because for Paul, if we're going to understand the scriptures on charismatic gifts as we call them, we need to first understand what he called them. Because we've developed a mindset, as I talked about last year, uh, last year, last week, it's been a long week. (laughs) I got to tell you this side joke. Steve Taylor and I were talking and this lawyer on the other side, he, he can be about as fun as watching paint dry. I'm telling you. It just, I, 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 I have taken to drinking a diet Dr. Pepper. <laughs> Understand before this trial, I've gone five years without caffeine. <laughs> I can't handle it. I was, I was on the nods <laughs> the other day. And, and uh, Steve Taylor says to me, he says, man, what about this? And I said, you know, if I only had three hours left to live... I think I'd like to spend it watching this fella examine witnesses. He said, why? I said, because it seemed like a year. <laughs> so anyway, last year. Uh, no, last week. Okay. Last week. <laughs> last week. You know, I don't even remember what point I was going to make now. Okay. The wages of sin is death. I do know we're on this slide. The, the charisma, the free gift of God, the concrete expression of God's giving is eternal life in our Lord Jesus. Now, I said this last week. I'll say it again this. Oh, another piece uses it. I'm sorry. I forgot I put this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. So even with the Corinthians, they understand what Paul means. He says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing... Actually, the word is charisma, the concrete expression of God's gift that's granted us through the prayers of many. And he's talking there within the context of the deliverance that he's gotten from, from, from prison and, and bondage and problems and, and hardships. He saw his deliverance in his life as a charismatic blessing. It was a, a concrete expression of God giving to him. You want a concrete expression of God giving to you. That's what you're talking about. Now, that obviously does include what we consider charismatic gifts, but we so limit Paul's word if we don't see how much broader it is. And I'm convinced, ah, here's where I was in my train of thought. Last week, I said to you, one of the problems we've got is we live in a scientific age. We live in the age of reason. That's the term sociologists have used for it and historians. We live in an age where we understand molecular structure, where we understand cause and effect, where we understand the natural order of things. And so for us, we have drawn a dichotomy. We've drawn a division. We've drawn a dividing line for several hundred years between that which we think is natural and happens on its own and that which is divine or the supernatural invasion of our world. And so for us, when we've made that change and we start thinking like that, we've got a problem. We've got a problem because we start to read into Scripture things that aren't in Scripture. We've got a problem because we draw this line between things that are supernatural 
And by that we mean things that God does and things that are natural or happen on their own. You with me? We draw that line. The problem is, Paul doesn't. And the Bible doesn't. The problem is, that line's been drawn by people who want to separate faith from reason. That line does not exist biblically. Because biblically, God is the reason the atom holds together. Biblically, nothing that happens here happens on its own. Biblically, everything, my breath, is a miracle. For it is God who provides me every breath. So we've got to be real careful not to draw that line when the line doesn't exist as we're listening and studying Paul's passages. Make sense? The other thing of my word of warning that I got to put back out here again anyway is the word of caution that God is God. If I'd had time, I'd have made Pastor Fleming give me his slide from the sermon this morning. God can do anything. He can. And gone are the days in my life, thankfully, where I've decided what God can and cannot do. If, if you've got sickness, I will pray for God to heal you. He may do it through a doctor. He may do it through a nurse. He may do it through your mother's chicken soup recipe. Or he may do it by his holy hand apart from those. Or he may not. But he's God. And I land on that point. So then what do we do as we unpack this passage? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, which is Paul's largest block of material on spiritual gifts. Well, I want us to get us back into the flow of where we were on this last week. And last week I warned you, I said, we've got to keep it in a context of understanding that Paul is writing to Corinth, but only after Corinth has already written to Paul. Paul's addressing specific questions in a specific church that call for specific responses. And so anytime we read this letter, 1 Corinthians, more so, maybe not, but almost more so than any other letter in the Bible, we need to read it with a frame of reference to where it was written and why it was written. We need to try and understand the one side of a phone conversation, the one side of correspondence. You know, Paul will, if we study our text carefully, we'll see the clues, like in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, where Paul says, concerning the matters about which you Corinthians wrote to me, where you Corinthians said, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul says, I take issue with that. Paul says, if you're married, it's not only good, it's important. And if you're going to have a period of abstinence in marriage, it's only going to be with these three conditions. And he sets them out. See, we've got to read it within its context. 
This is the one side of the phone conversation that we were talking about. We're only hearing Paul's end of it. We're not hearing what the Corinthians had said to him except to the extent he quotes it. Which is adequate for us to figure out about 95%. I think the other 5% God kind of threw in there just to keep us on our toes. Where Paul talks about baptism for the dead with the Corinthians, for example. And we don't quite have all the answers, but I don't think we're supposed to have all the answers. We have the answers we're supposed to have. Does that make sense? We're going to get to that more when we start studying Genesis. Our goal, I think our last class in this room is going to be either February 14th or 21st. They're uncertain at this point. They're also uncertain where they're moving us. But that gives them a few weeks to figure it out and to tell us. But we're going to try and start our biblical literacy class where we really dig into the Bible uh, uh, when we start in our new space. We've been in communication with Crossway Publishers. They're providing Bibles to our class because they know about our class. They've been on our class website. And they have provided Bibles, study Bibles for our class to have. So we're all studying out of the English Standard Version. I'm very excited. It's very exciting. So we're going to have those. We're going to start this new class. But I've decided this new time we're digging down deeper. It's biblical literacy, the graduate school. Okay? Because one of the classes that I want to deal with are issues in Genesis. And, I, and, and, and I'll tell you the same thing you're going to hear from me when we dig down. God doesn't give all the answers. He gives us the answers we need. Okay? There are lots of possibilities that are still in the world. And we'll look at some of those. It'll be fun to talk about. Uh, we'll get into some pretty uh, uh, aggressive, serious things that I'm excited about. But right now... If we look here, we don't have all the answers, but it's not because God's scripture is inadequate or incomplete or insufficient. It's not because he left out details and he failed to finish the novel. It's because he gives us what he decides to give us, not necessarily what we wish he had given us. Does that make sense? So when we look then at the context that we can establish for the Corinthians passage, we've got to get in Paul's flow of thought. Paul's talking about the Corinthian worship time. And he started this in chapter 8. And so within this flow up through chapter 15, Paul's talking about worship time. And he starts out in chapter 12 dealing with spiritual gifts. He's already dealt with eating and, and attending pagan feasts and what communion needs to be like. Now he's hit spiritual gifts and their role. He'll take a little digression uh, before he gets to chapter 14 where he talks about the abuse of tongues. By the way, did y'all hear our tongues in church this morning? Yeah, she sang in Spanish. Yeah, that's technically that's speaking in tongues. Um, because tongues are foreign languages. Uh, biblically, now sometimes it's a foreign language that nobody may know. I think for the Corinthians, they had some ecstatic utterances, as people call them. But it's still, it's speaking in foreign languages. And we had an interpreter. It's down there on the screen in English for people like me. Who can't follow the Spanish. So anyway. But there was an abuse of tongues going on in the Corinthian church. And the abuse of tongues was not one because they had tongues. It's because of the way they used tongues. The usage 
was an abuse within the church, not the, the manifestation itself. But we can look at that in more detail in a little bit. The key was what Paul inserted in the middle between chapter 12 and 14 where Paul talked about love. Because love is the key to all of this. How do you build up the church? How do you build up the body? God is giving gifts to the church to build us up. I'm up here teaching, hopefully, to give you something that makes your life different as you understand our Lord and Savior. If I'm just up here teaching because we all have this lurid desire for knowledge, then we're wasting our time. I got to have some word that, that teaches and feeds the hunger that's within our souls to know more about our God and how he can help us in what we do each day. That's the goal. That's what, that makes anything charismatic. Because then it becomes a concrete expression of God's giving. If I'm up here teaching what I know, what I think, just because I like to, well, I might be giving you some gift, but there's nothing charismatic going on. It's when God steps in and God works in spite of my frailties and in spite of what I do, when God works in your hearing and your heart and your mind, when God's spirit cleans out those ears and softens that heart and moves in you, then something concrete is happening. And it's charismatic, according to Paul. We talked last week about this and we said, don't get distracted by the love chapter. Keep the flow of what Paul's saying. And then we said, are the gifts that Paul lists the only gifts? And I threw out there the example of, of Bill Young and the gift of parking. And someone came up to me, I forgot who this morning, was it Daniel Shelton? And said, that gift is spreading. I went to Payway for lunch, bam, right there. Are those the only gifts that Paul lists? No. Paul gives you lists in three different places. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. Though in Ephesians 4, he doesn't call them charismatic gifts. But look at them. In Romans 12, he gives a gift of prophecy, a gift of service, a gift of teaching, exhorting, contributing, leading, mercy. 1 Corinthians 12, words of wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing. Working miracles, prophecy, distinguishing spirits, speaking in tongues or interpreting tongues. Ephesians 4, his gift is apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, pastors. Those are his gifts. See, the lists aren't even the same, are they? Oh, you can find prophecy in each one. You can find teaching in two of the three. But you don't have the exact same list because this isn't an exhausting list. Okay, we got to do something about the temperature, gang. It gets hot in here. Um, sorry. We've, we've, got, we've got Paul, and I'm not saying he just cavalierly or God cavalierly put these lists together. But I think there is a very specific point that these are not the exhaustive lists. Don't think God only works in these ways. Don't think that these lists are exclusive. I mean, we can delve into them, and, and I've taken tests to see which lists I've got, uh, which gifts seem more naturally mine. 
And I, I've got, uh, we've got a website for the church to help you find your niche. And that's a wonderful thing. But David Fleming emailed me on the lesson. He said, one of the things I like about your lesson, please tell the class from me that we should be trying to, to, to not just find one gift that's us, but trying to grow in all of these. Because we can grow before the Lord by his spirit. So that's what we do. So now let's look at the gifts here in 1 Corinthians. The 1 Corinthians gifts are, first, the utterance of wisdom. Now, I spoke about this last week briefly. Last week I said we've got to understand what it is within the flow of Paul's speaking. And so the utterance of wisdom, wisdom is not something new to the Corinthians or even to Paul's writing. If we want to understand what Paul had to say about wisdom to the Corinthians, we're going to go back to the very, very start of the letter. Because in the very start of the letter, Paul speaks about wisdom. And it's fascinating how he does it. Chapter 1, verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, for it's written. Where is it written? It's written right there. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He goes on to say, so where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greek seeks wisdom. To those who are called Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Whoops, sorry. Wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God, stronger than men. It keeps going down to verse 30. Because of him, you are in, whoops, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. It keeps going. Chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Verse 4. My speech, my message, were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit. Let's see. Demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. It's used twice in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom but not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. He goes on and on, does it multiple times still within the letter. What's he saying there? See, when we remember that Paul's writing to a church that's been writing to him, you've got to know that church was talking about how wise some of them were. And Paul wants them to understand that there is an utterance. There are words of wisdom. In the Greek, it's logos sophia. Sophia means wisdom. 
sophistry we get from it. Sophomore, like a sophomore. Um, uh, uh, that sophos. Uh, of course, mores, we get the word moron from. <laughs> sophomore technically means someone who thinks they're wise, but they're a moron. <laughs> the premise is... You made it through the freshman year. Now you're a sophomore. You really think you're something special, but you're not. That's what sophomore means. So, Sophia. With that, you'll remember maybe the Greek root for for wise. Sophia. Sophia logos. Logos being a word. A word of wisdom. Well, it may not be what you think or I think is wisdom. It's clearly not what the world thinks is wisdom. What makes it wise is the foolishness of the cross. A word of wisdom is a charismata gift. It is a spiritual gift when it is a word that lifts up Jesus Christ. And you cannot proclaim Jesus as Lord except by the Spirit of God. If you are going to have a word of wisdom that lifts up Jesus in the foolishness of the cross, the idea that a conquering God conquers through death and losing, the paradox to the world that says God cares enough for you that he will give everything he has for you doesn't sound wise to the world but it's a message of wisdom and those are words of wisdom and they cannot proceed to lift up Jesus Christ except by the Holy Spirit and I'm not saying that God can't do it in what we might consider supernatural but I am telling you that every time it's done it's supernatural Words of wisdom can come after much study, prayer, and meditation. Words of wisdom does not mean someone who has an ability to stand up and proclaim a word that they have absolutely no control over at all. It might include that within God's scheme. I'm not saying God can't work that dynamic, but that's not the root of it. And the same is true for the utterance of knowledge. The utterance of knowledge is Sophia Gnosis. Gnosis. We turned the G, the Greek G, into a K and made it silent for knowledge. But it's still there. It's a turn on, on, uh, that should not be Sophia Gnosis. It should be Logos Gnosis. I'm sorry for the typo on my PowerPoint slide. But again, this is a word, knowledge, that the Corinthians were very familiar with and were themselves abusing. This is where it's important we remember the context. Let's go back to the Elmo and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is where Paul started the part about worship. And he says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now, look what our translators have done for us. They've told us what the scholars have to say about this. Do you see those things there? What are those? Those quotation marks, aren't they? You know who Paul, Paul is quoting? The Corinthians. Yeah, they wrote to him. 
They wrote to him and they told him that all of us possess knowledge. And Paul says, yeah, and this quote-unquote knowledge puffs up. Contrast it to love, which builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he has a word of knowledge, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, God knows him. The core to understanding any word of knowledge is that God knows you. The core of understanding a concrete expression of God giving you anything is knowing that God knows who it is he's giving it to. You know, oh, I have knowledge. Paul says, this whole idea of, of what you can eat and what you can't eat and who the Lord is and who the Lord isn't, not everybody has this knowledge. And some through former association with idols eat food as if it's really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Now food doesn't commend us to God. Okay? We're, we're not... Let's get back up here. We're no worse off if we don't eat. We're no better off if we do. But take care of this right of yours that it doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. Because if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he won't be encouraged. Look what they thought knowledge was. The Corinthians were convinced that they have knowledge so they can eat food to idols because they know there's no such thing as an idol. So when they eat the food to the idol, their knowledge is sufficient to make it not sinful. And Paul says, don't give me that because not everyone has the knowledge. And your knowledge is just puffing you up and out. (laughs) You can forego a meal out of those who don't have your special knowledge. Because what you need to know is that you're known by God. And you want a word of knowledge? Let's make it a charismata word of knowledge. A concrete expression of God's giving. And God gives that gift to some people. But you want to know who's got it? It's not the one who says, I have a word of knowledge. I can eat this food. And does so to the sin and transgression of other people. Sit down and eat this. It may violate your conscience, but I have enough knowledge for the two of us. Paul says, no, that's not a word of knowledge. You want a concrete expression of God's giving, that's going to be a word of knowledge that builds up, that comes from love, that communicates God knowing you. That's a charismatic knowledge. Paul then talks about faith. He lists faith as another charismatic gift. This is something beyond saving faith. There are people who have faith beyond, well, every believer's got faith. Paul's talking about here, there are some people who have faith to endure circumstances others can't. The gentleman Pastor David talked about who's fighting cancer, who sent Pastor David an email midway through his fight saying, I wouldn't give it back to God because of what he has revealed to me about who he is. That man's got beyond saving faith. He's got charismata faith. He's got a faith that's a concrete expression of what God's given him at his time in need. 
And there are people in the church who have faith like that. And we need to know them, we need to identify them, and we need to try to become them. Lord, give me that kind of faith. But be careful when you pray that because that kind of faith often comes through trials and tribulations. So maybe some of you are at a place right now where you're saying, Lord, I got enough faith. <laughs> we'll get back into that faith growing later. Right now, give me mercy <laughs> in ministry. Be careful what you ask for. He may give it to you. I got an email from a friend this week. He said to me, he said, I've got this horrible thing going on in my life. A very dear family friend has just committed suicide. We can't figure out why. He didn't have financial troubles. He knew the Lord. He didn't have social troubles. He didn't have family troubles. We cannot figure out why. And he says, I'd be in desperation were it not for the fact that God is with me today. And God tells me I don't have to understand why. I just need to hold his hand. That man has a charismatic gift of faith. And he uses it to lift up the Lord Jesus when he shares it. Healing. I chose Dr. House for a number of reasons, not the least of which is he seems to be an atheist through and through if you watch the show. Bless his little arrogant heart. House has never healed anyone. The Lord has. We have medical doctors. I'll bet you there are millions of people healed in America every year. And God should get credit for every one of them. I'm not saying he can't do it without the medical doctors. But I truly go back to the old story we hear about. I sent two boats and a helicopter. Why are you complaining to me? And He's given us. The reason we have science, the reason 2 plus 2 equals 4 is because God set it up that way. The reason penicillin can cure is because God set it up that way. And whether the doctor gives credit or not to God, the life itself and the healing itself comes from the Lord. Now, am I saying that's the only healing? Heavens, no. And if you've got cancer, I pray God's healing upon you. If your back hurts, I pray God's healing upon you. And God may very well choose to heal you. But he may also choose to send you to a doctor. Or he may choose to bring you home. All of us will die one day. But it's only to live forever. And we've got to, to remember, let God be God. And I'll tell you when a healing is charismatic, it's when it glorifies God. Whether it comes from a doctor, hospital, nurse, nurse practitioner, faith healer, or just God on his own. And the antibodies that your body makes. Healing comes from God and should lift him up. Do some have a special gift of being able to heal? I mean, Paul was able to heal some people. But not everybody. Let's keep going because I'm going to run out of time. I can't do this a fifth week. Miracles. Paul talks about miracles. And 
you know, what, what are the miracles? What, what are the miracles? Aren't all of these miracles? Miracles is something that's a little bit different. The Greek for miracles that Paul's using, come on, come on, come on, change. Ah, is energamata. See, mata, like charismata, that's taking a verb and turning it into a noun or taking a noun and making it in a concrete expression. A concrete expression of the workings of God's power. It's what ergonomata, dunamion, comes from dunamis, dynamite, power. Okay? It's a working of power. It might be parting the Red Sea. It might be helping me write a Sunday school lesson that's 15 pages long when I haven't slept all week. It doesn't matter. It's charismata when God's power is working to lift up the Lord Jesus. And it might be as miraculous as, as, as uh, uh, the parting of the Red Sea. But it might be as miraculous as you stumbling upon this church. And while I am no fan of closing your eyes and flipping through the Bible and finding a scripture, as you've heard me say many times in this class, you just might do that and find one because God puts your finger there. And while I'm not a fan of that, and I will urge everybody against that, I'll also recognize that God may work that way. And if he does, it's a miracle. It's a working of his power. A concrete expression of his power. Uh, prophecy. Go back to week 59. We had this great slide. We don't have time for it now. Bam, bam, bam. There it is. You can figure it out. Next. Distinguishing spirits. That was week 59. Just like that. Bam. Um, distinguishing spirits. What does Paul mean by this? Does he mean testing the spirits? Like we read about in John. First John. Does he mean weighing what is said, like he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, to try and make a discernment? Is that godly or not? Is that scriptural or not? He probably means both. There is a spiritual world. There is a spiritual realm. And you need to check and measure the influences, but you also need to weigh what is said by Scripture. When does this become a charismatic gift? When it's used to the glory of God, when it's a concrete expression of who Jesus is. Can it be supernatural? Oh, yes. Can it be what we would term natural? Absolutely. can be either one. Tongues and interpretations. Thank you, Dale Hearn. Paul talks about tongues. Tongues can be speaking in a known language. In Acts chapter 2, there's a listening in tongues. The apostles are speaking, but everybody hears it in their own tongue. You might find yourself in Africa needing to say something and unable to say it because you don't speak the language. And lo and behold, you're speaking and they're hearing what you're saying. If so, get a movie camera and we'll figure out, are you speaking in tongues or are they hearing in tongues? The Corinthians weren't having that issue. They were speaking in the tongues of angels, they thought. They were speaking ecstatically. Paul says, that's fine. Hey, do that all you want, but don't do it in the assembly because people will think you're whacked out. The only way it gets done in an assembly is if there's somebody with a gift of interpretation. So if you've got an angel that knows that language in the assembly, you can do it. But absent that, do that at home. If that's the way that God ministers and nourishes to your heart and your soul, do it. To your heart's content. 
but don't do it where visitors are around because they're just not going to understand. If you've got visitors in a church assembly, I'd rather say 10 words that make sense to them than a million that don't, Paul says, because it's got to be something that lifts up the Lord Jesus. And if it's going to lift up the Lord Jesus, it needs to be comprehensible. Now, speaking in tongues to yourself or out loud on your own may lift up the Lord Jesus in your life. And if so, that's a fine place for it to be. But not in the assembly. And that's what he says in chapter 14. That's how it's charismatic. Now, what's the difference between a gift and a talent? What's the difference between a charismatic gift and a talent? Because the way I've described it, some of it might sound like a talent. A charismatic gift is where God takes your talent... And either grows it or infuses it, but it's used to the glory of God. It's a charismatic gift. Now, there can be a gift beyond a simple talent. God might give you a a spiritual dispensation that you've never had before. I'm not precluding that, but I am telling you, God has already... You got a talent? Do you know where you got that from? The Lord... You've got, we've all got abilities. The question is, do we bring them to the Lord and let him use them to build up the church, his kingdom, and lift up the Lord Jesus to be praised? If so, we're a concrete expression of his giving. If not, we're muddling through with our talents. But who wants talents when they can have charismatic gifts? So let's use them for the glory of God. Now, is there a difference between a spiritual gift and a normal gift? There is to some degree. There are spiritual dispensations that God seems to give. You know, laying hands. Jesus laid hands on his apostles and gave them authorities over disease and, and, and demons that they didn't have otherwise. Are the miracle gifts gone? Some people believe that, that God had these dispensations of these eras where he would work miracles. I'll tell you, I don't believe that. I have a miracle working God today. And he's not changed. He's the same today he was yesterday. And he'll be the same tomorrow. And I have no trouble asking my miracle working God for a miracle. And, you know, I'm telling you, I've asked him before. The first time in my life, I was attending a charismatic church. And I was not raised charismatic. I wasn't even raised close to charismatic. I was raised about as far from charismatic as you can possibly be raised. So much so that when I rebelled against my parents, do you know what form my rebellion took? I went to a charismatic church. I was a very rebellious child. I was in college in Nashville, Tennessee, and I went to this charismatic church, and I thought, I want this. Lord, give me a special gift of the Holy Spirit. I want it, and I want it right now, please, even though I don't believe in it. Give it to me. Because I'm probably wrong. And he did. You want to know what happened to me? I was still seated. I didn't start saying anything. I didn't collapse. I didn't start shaking. But for the first time in my life, in a way that I'd never had before, I understood that Jesus Christ died for me. I had known it. 
I'd even felt it. But in that moment, it was more real to me than it had ever been before. Now, I could never ask for a greater gift from my God than a fresh, plentiful, bountiful understanding of his love and mercy for me. The miracle gifts aren't gone. But let's not lose sight of what they exist for. It's to make Jesus Lord in our lives and in our church. Ah, points for home. Go to www.championforce.org slash volunteer slash church and take the test and see where your gifts lie. Not only because you want to use those gifts, but so you can figure out which ones you want to grow before the Lord in. Because you want all, Paul had every gift he's talking about. God's not a spendthrift. He's not just giving you one. You get them all. There are varieties of gift. One's given one to another, another. But strive for all of them, he says. Seek to serve him in all ways. Because these, empowered by the one, the same spirit who apportions to each one as he wills. What does that mean? It means you're God's project to the glory of Jesus. I went over time two minutes. I apologize. Would you pray with me, though? Lord, in the name of Jesus, I do pray your presence among us. And not because I have any special authority, but because you died for us. And I know in your word that if we ask you, you give us. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit will manifest itself in our lives so that we and what we do will be concrete expressions of who you are. That we will lift up Jesus. I pray for everybody in here that your spirit will touch their hearts and touch their lives in special ways. That the patience they have, that the health that they have, that the mental clarity that they have, that the words that they say, that the service of their heart, that it will all be to your glory because it is your spirit working within us. Through Jesus we pray, amen.